Hello and welcome to Overdrive, where we experiment with ideas and activities to do with cars and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have some news stories, including the compilation of information about the emission levels from vehicle brands in Australia. In our interviews and features, Alan Zervis has been for a spin in five different Audis around the Phillip Island racetrack, including the top-of-the-range sports car, the R8. Alan and I also have a quick chat about some new Peugeots. We look at the wording of a New South Wales government ad for a critical traffic management position and ask the question, have we lost all sense of technology in a sea of buzzwords? And having sustained such a period of rain on the East Coast, Rob Fraser reports on an experience he had with low-profile tyres and a large pothole. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on Spotify or iTunes or you can go to our Facebook or Instagram page, Overdrive City. Let's get going. Let's have the news. The Federal Chamber of Automotive Industries have just released the preliminary results of the typical pollution levels by brand of vehicles sold in Australia. Their aim by reporting these figures is to encourage and achieve an average 4% per annum reduction up to the year 2030. The FCAI reflects a major concern in the industry that there's a lack of policy development. Their CEO, Tony Webber, said... The Australian automotive sector would be very pleased for the federal government to adopt our emissions reduction target as part of an ambition to reduce emissions in the transport sector. We've seen in countries around the world that emission targets drive the supply of low emission vehicles. New vehicles are not only more efficient, they typically have greater safety and comfort features. More stride and pollution reduction requirements will be part of ensuring Australia receives the latest vehicles and therefore their many community benefits. Hyundai will be replacing their IMAX people mover with an all-new model called the Staria. The external look is a space-age van, unlike Kia's latest dominant people mover, the Carnival, which is more like a stretched SUV. Hyundai said that the Staria's look is based on an inside-out approach, a new design methodology for future mobility that begins with the interior and then expands to the exterior. This can help an increasing market for PBVs, purpose-built vehicles. Future mobility is under pressure to move more people per vehicle while giving everyone enough space. And mobility vehicles may ultimately be autonomous and electric power, which changes the interior space needs. The Staria second row of seats, for example, will be able to swivel around 180 degrees and face people in the third row. The Staria should be released in Australia in the second half of this year. Peugeot Australia has released makeovers of their medium-sized 3008 and 5008 SUV models, with new styling features, a bit more technology and additional safety features as they strive to move their image up market. The 3008 is the most striking, with the front grille being less of the typical SUV get-out-of-my-way aggression. Inside, the latest digital eye cockpit dashboard, which can be customised to some degree, 
and piano-like key switches slightly angled towards the driver. They give you a feeling of sitting in a control panel of a quite advanced bit of machinery. Comfort and safety features include a 180 degree rear view camera, park assist and driver warning alert. Both models come with either a 1.6 litre turbo petrol engine or a 2 litre turbo diesel. The 3008 is priced between $45,000 and $55,000 plus on roads and the bigger 5008 between $52,000 and $60,000 plus on roads. Sea Electric has announced a launch of volume production of its first locally assembled electric trucks. The company was founded in Australia in 2012 but is now headquartered in the US. Up until now they have produced customised electric trucks by replacing diesel engines in existing vehicles with their patented electric drivetrains for specialised applications such as garbage trucks, moving vehicles or cherry pickers. Now they are taking Hino 300 and 500 series medium trucks in semi-knockdown kits and assembling them but with their own electric motors. The range is limited being about 200 to 300 kilometres unladen but the first question is not what is the range but rather how will the truck be used. The very large increase in home deliveries in urban areas the desire to reduce operating costs and air and noise pollution will see an increased demand for these vehicles. And that has been the news. Well, so far this year, for the first couple of months, Audi hasn't been doing as well as it might. The market's up about 8%. Audi's down at 2.5%. It's early days and we are in recovery mode and Audi does have a fair range of vehicles. And someone who's been driving some of the hero cars, particularly, is our good mate Alan Zervis from Gay Carboys. G'day, Alan. How are you, David? Good. I notice Audi's best-selling model is their small SUV, the Q3, but you were perhaps at the other end of the scale, and you were down at the Phillip Island Raceway. What were you in? We had five cars to, to choose from, but look, just before we move on, I just wanted to mention that. 20% of Audi sales were the R and RS cars, and the S cars, so the sporty ones. And I think that speaks volumes for the direction that their buyers are heading in. So that's 20% of those models that they have an RS in, or, or overall? 20% overall. Blimey. So isn't that astounding? And they're the expensive ones too. And they go like the train. I mean, there's some pretty serious technology there. Well, of course, sitting at the top is the V10 R8. It is absolutely, and I accidentally selected that car as my first car to take out on the track. Yeah, yeah. I should have started at the TT and worked up. Of course, these are parts of the program that are available to the public, and they started around, I think, $1,500 and go up. You get an entire day at the track, there's catering and, and so forth, and a selection of cars that come with instructors. So did you get instructions or perhaps even a show and tell of driving the top of the range at R8 with a V10 engine around the circuit? What happened there? Well, I took my 446 kilowatts out onto the track unsuspectingly with 560 newton metres, if that wasn't enough to be going on with. And what they do is they give you a briefing first. 
obviously you want to know i'd never been to this track before wanted to know a little bit about it we've got to watch out for things like geese and so forth which is uh, a little bit of added comfort but the day was damp so we got to experience these cars probably in near enough to the worst conditions that you'd face on a track anything beyond that and they'd probably cancel it so the cars go out in pairs one driver per car and the person in front is an instructor and they stay with you the entire way you managed to get a hot lap who was the driver melinda price she is fabulous now you and i have been on track days before and when you do a hot lap the instructor dash professional driver is always so calm and cool well melinda and i were giggling like schoolgirls. <laughs> While you were going around at pace, she did one full on lap for you. How did you find it? Uh, we had one warm-up lap, as if we needed a warm-up lap, two hot laps, and a cool-down lap. And she seemed to cover the distance in considerably less time than I did. <laughs> <laughs> Coming down the straight, she managed to get, I was commenting on the video as well, she managed to get to 246 kilometres an hour before... Uh, quite a decent dab of break at the end of the straight to go around the upward swinging corner. That's uh, right-hander sweeping corner. It's a lovely corner, but it's for the brave to take uh, at any great speed. Yeah, it's got a very strange apex. It's sort of the apex is further through the corner than you might normally expect. But I think the real challenge of this circuit is the way it rises and falls into some of the corners and some of the corners feel slightly off camber. They're probably not, but that's just the way they feel. Oh, I think that second left-hand sweeper that really goes around a long way, that's got a bit of off camber to it, I believe. And that's the one where you don't want to just hit an early apex. You want to be able to let it drift out wide and then come into the final apex of it. Now, there's some, uh, they're rather pretty cars, aren't they? You went round in the TT or you saw the TT there. I, I didn't even know they're selling it. I think they sold about three so far this year. Uh, is it still an, an interesting car? Well, the funny thing was that was probably the most difficult car to drive because it's very small short wheelbase, quite light, and for its weight, the five-cylinder engine uh, has quite a lot of power. Now, we also had that car, interestingly, on the skid pan. So we did a, a little bit of a slalom and, you know, you go around sideways and, and into a, 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 a garage of cones. But they also did a demonstration of what these cars are like without the safety gear turned on. So that you turn off the traction control and on a damp skid pan, it's completely uncontrollable, no matter who you are. Do you like it sideways? It was so much fun. I, looked, I went into it with a great deal of trepidation, but Melinda said to me, look, you'll be right. Just when you take off, put your foot straight to the floor. Straight to the floor. That's what they're trying to do, and on full lock. So they were trying to get you to break traction from the outset, just to see how bad things are if you're stupid enough to take the traction control off on the track. I would think that those who think they're good enough to turn it off are the very ones who should leave it on. Audi must have noticed the reactions of some of the general public that comes down to that is a, this system is available to them, this opportunity is available to them. Do they reflect on that? 
Oh, they did uh, very much so. And I think particularly in the fact that you don't have to be a competent racetrack driver in order to take part in these days. You just have to really be a competent driver. And all levels of expertise are catered for. Uh, it's just difficult to do it in a professional way. And there was one corner I just couldn't get right. Uh, no matter how hard I tried, I missed the apex every time. And uh, it was trying to double steer in or double steer out. And it, it just didn't didn't work out well. I think one of the important points about this is to know your limitations. And this is, in some ways, to learn many things, including your own limitations. Would that be one of the outputs from a day like this? I think so, and I think it also makes you a more considerate driver too. Audi's taking this whole thing very seriously. They've got, uh, I think it's 500 positions available throughout the year. Uh, of course, last year was completely cancelled because of COVID. There's a $5.5 million investment in 23 cars. So that's a, that's an astonishing amount of money. And I think the most expensive single event is around $3,500, but you'll have those prices, no doubt. A number of car manufacturers are doing it. We, I went to the Maserati one where, among other things, he said the people that particularly learnt well from it were the women because, A, they listened, B, they didn't overestimate their ability, and they were prepared to learn. And some, quite often they ended up with a better performance than some of their male uh, counterparts or even their partners, to so much to the chagrin of their partners as well. Alan, after the break, we might just talk a little bit about some Peugeots. Thanks, David. You're listening to Overdrive. And coming back, we have Alan Zervis on the line. Alan, I went for a drive in a couple of the new Peugeots. Peugeots are really trying to move up market. Do you see them as a prestige brand? Look, I, I don't see them as a prestige brand, but I do see them as a very decent quality everyday brand. I know they're trying to up market themselves, uh, certainly with the price, but I, I'm not quite sure especially in Europe, that they're seen as a prestige brand. Well, I think out of France, their home territory, they're seen more as a run-around sort of everyday car, but they're trying to do it with elegant looks and some fairly clever, good-looking technology inside. I had a drive of the 5008, their biggest SUV, and the 3008. They both are categorised within the medium SUV category, I actually like the 3008 looks of it. Their smaller one, which I, we drove late last year, was a lovely car to drive. Absolutely enjoyed it immensely. But it's got a little bit of a look at the front of that SUVs of the, you know, get out of my way, here I come. You know, that sort of bold look. Whereas the Absolutely. The next one up, the new 3008, had a, a, a slightly lower nose and less of a grill to it which I, I quite liked. Well, I think the important thing here is that the 3008 and 5008, what you, the launch you went to was their refresh. So they'd been out for, and we also went, I think, to the original launch, uh, what, two or three years ago. And they've changed the look a little bit, whereas the 2008, I think, uh, you're right, I think it, it feels like some of the older ones, to me anyway. They've been, and they talked about being, 
development of 10 years, but now they're finally sort of getting it all together with a launch of a range of products. There will be uh, some electrifications, possibly even a FEV, a plug-in electric hybrid, and then later, 2022, would be a, a full electric coming to it. So they've got to be seen to be doing that, but um, I think they've got a bit of a way to go here in Australia but they're, they're all very positive in doing it. At least part of that, David, is the fact that there's been no government support for any kind of electrification of our transport industry beyond trams and trains. Yep. So there's very little public charging infrastructure, as indeed we found this week when we had the Tesla. Uh, indeed, and next week we will talk a little bit more about that in detail. But for the moment... Uh, Alan, thank you very much for your time, and uh, how about we catch up next week? Thanks, David. Let's do that. You're listening to Overdrive. On a number of occasions here on Overdrive, we have expressed concern about government departments reducing the number of engineers and other science-based professionals in their ranks and increasing the number of PR experts. This provides the opportunity, of course, to be able to better blame other people when things go wrong. One area in particular that has caught our attention is the amount of appropriate resources not being given to the management of our traffic light system. The New South Wales Government in the 1970s developed a world-class signal coordination system, SCATS, that has been sold around the world. Many of the brilliant minds who are part of this development and who have now retired are disillusioned about the current government approach to maintaining and developing this system. The other concern is that human resources is becoming an inward-looking function full of buzzwords. Let's look at a recent example. Transport for New South Wales is now advertising for a job in signals adaptive engineering. The job will function within the Transport Management Centre, although the person writing the ad noted it as the Traffic Management Centre, which I believe to be inaccurate. But anyway, here are some of the sentences from the advertisement. To achieve the technical risk in traffic signal software design by applying policies, standards and guidelines and confirming security policies and methodologies are consistently implemented across project development, operation and administrative processes and procedures. It goes on, model collegiate and collaborative behaviours to achieve the greater good for the community, celebrate a diverse workforce create an environment where people can create and thrive or support people's well-being. The use of the word or rather than and means that you have to choose which of those things you are going to do, I would presume. It goes on, provide an escalation point for issues or complex decision-making. Our vision is to give everyone the freedom to choose how and when they get around, no matter where they live providing advice and technically related to traffic control systems. From all my colleagues that understand traffic control systems, none of them understood the ad. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, the east coast of Australia has been through a period of torrential rain and floods, and it has produced the extreme cases of uh, roads being washed out and bridges being taken out. But it also creates situations in many circumstances where the car is having to cope with certain difficulties and are we prepared for that? 
Now, our colleague Rob Fraser from osroma.com.au has had an experience that is perhaps not perfect along the way. G'day, Rob. David, how are you? Very well, thank you. What happened? I was a, a, a victim of the rain driving along in a 40 zone, hit a pothole that I didn't see in the rain because it was full of water. So I was only doing 40 and instantly blew my front right-hand tyre. Now, the problem with that is, is that uh, and a particular manufacturer had uh, roadside assistance, so I called them and they came out and helped, which was great. He was in wet weather gear. I was standing there holding a torch for him just in a T-shirt and shorts and soaked to the skin. The question then arose about where do you put the tyre because the spare was a space saver. And so the, the flat tyre wouldn't actually fit in the same area in the boot that the space saver came out of. The roadside assist was there to help you change the tyre. They were excellent. The tragedy was you had to change to a very poor quality tyre and you had to pick the big one back in where the little one came from. And it just wouldn't go. It wouldn't go. So you had to put it where? Well, I ended up putting it in the boot. Luckily, we weren't travelling. Now, I haven't had a flat tyre for many, many years and so... I think sometimes it's not until you actually experience this firsthand that you actually start to think of all the logistics of it. If I'd been travelling with a boot full of luggage, I would have had nowhere to put that tyre until we got to the next place where I could have had it fixed or replaced. There's simply nowhere to put it. Luckily enough, my boot was empty, so I put it in the boot, uh, which was okay, but it makes you start to think a little bit. If you had have had a Jaguar F-Type which has a very small boot, uh, which they'll even encourage you on press launches uh, or press cars. They'll send you out without the spare tyre in there because it just takes up too much space. But they will have one of these roadside assistance programs. But the trouble is then the big wide rear tyre, if you've got anything bigger than a towel in the back of the car, (laughs) you won't have room to put the tyre in. And look, I guess in some ways you can understand it in a car like the F-Type J because, I mean, it is a sports car. It's designed for that type of thing. But the particular car I was in was one of the plethora of SUVs, all-wheel drive SUVs that are running around these days, and it had a space saver. And then it actually made me start to think, you know, when I was a kid, we had a Holden Kingswood, and the spare tyre sat upright in the right well of the boot, you know, so you could move the luggage aside, pull it out, change the tyre, put the, the flat one back in there without too much inconvenience. So, I mean, as design increased, the, the tyres then went to underneath the boot floor. Again, you have to pull everything out, but you still had enough room to put the spare tyre back in. But then manufacturers have started moving towards these space-saver tyres, or in fact some cars have none and they just have the goop that you put in the tyres. And I think that's when the problem starts to come in, when it moves out of the specialty vehicles into the mainstream vehicles, and all of a sudden, you've got a problem. How was your drive home on a tyre that was rated to only 80 kilometres an hour? Ah, now that was fun. Now, as many listeners would know, I live about two and a half hours north of Sydney and couldn't get a spare tyre for about four or five days up here because it was a specialty tyre. So, yes, I had to drive home. I, I picked very late at night, but it was still bucketing down rain and driving 80 kilometres an hour on a freeway where most people are still doing 110, even though it's raining. Again, it makes you realise that not so much speed is the issue, but speed differential. You had trucks coming up on your derriere very quickly. Uh, So I was constantly looking in the rearview mirror, hitting the hazard lights, 
until they notice me and then move it into the other lane. It's not something I'd volunteer again for very quickly, I can assure you. They're only rated to 80k, and of course you wouldn't want to do any more because they're a very narrow tyre, which would have had poor grip. Uh, so it's, it, it is a safety issue as well as just a functional issue. And because even at well, 70 to 80k's now, although I did hit the cruise control and sit it on close as I possibly could, where there was water shooting across the road, it, it, the car would actually, you could feel that, because I swapped the, the space over to the back right-hand side, oh. which was the best I could do, um, you'd actually feel the car moving a bit because of the water, where otherwise it wouldn't have even bothered it. Well, there's an issue there. I, years ago, was in a Saab convertible and the front tyre went down and I was on the way to a television show and I, I was had a Spanish floral shirt on, just, it was part <laughs> of the show, and some old guy in a ute took great delight in telling this wanker in this uh, convertible <laughs> with a, this bright shirt that the tyre was going down. Well, because I put it on and the electronics in the car began to say, well, hang on, one wheel is not acting like the other, so you've got a problem. I had the tyre pressure monitor flashing at me the entire trip down. Because it was probably rotating at a different speed. But fortunately, I presume the roadside assistance guy would have understood why you wanted to not just replace the tyre but move it to the back. Well, no, actually, we because it was bucketing down right, we left it on the front right. until the next day when I had an opportunity to then swap it over and I realised I couldn't get a replacement tyre for for three or four days or five days was and that's when I said to the type it was please just swap it to the back because yeah that's the the safest option I can have out of this you knowing of course that it was a front-wheel drive car or was it an all-wheel drive it was an all-wheel drive car predominantly front wheel which then directs drive to the rear wheels as and when necessary can I t take up this subject I was driving a number of cars around in this wet weather and the first thing I noticed Around the urban areas going straight through a puddle, the modern car is wonderfully good, given it's got all the correct tyres on it, at not yanking the steering wheel out of your hand. And I'd even made the mistake where I was reaching for something just when I hit a puddle of water, so I was only hanging on with one hand. A poor example of driving etiquette. True. But it, it seemed to work remarkably well. But I just went for a tour in the country when you were doing things like a sweeping corner and there was water across the roads, and when the wheel would turn a little bit, it wasn't dangerous, it, and it coped with it much better than my 1956 Morris Minor with retread tyres, my first car. <laughs> it reacted much better, yet it was still a bit of a shock. So there, you've got to, these are just some of the things that you've got to look out for, would you say, when driving around in the wet? No matter how much technology improves and how much the vehicles have these inbuilt safety features, it's very difficult to overcome the laws of physics. <laughs> Rob, always lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for that. And uh, we go on with caution in these times of great floods and fires and well, hopefully not famine. <laughs> David, thank you. <laughs> and that's Rob Fraser from ozroma.com.au a great uh, expert in things to do with touring around the country and using our great Australian countryside to enjoy in the uh, lifestyle and the environment and having the right car to do it. You're listening to Overdrive. 
I'll just add one more issue about driving in the rain, and that's hitting some potholes and getting a flat, which may be more likely to happen if you have low-profile tyres. Low-profile tyres have less depth in their sidewalls, which reduces the deflection of the tyre when under cornering load. They can make the car harsher in the ride and produce more road noise, but they do improve handling. There are conflicting opinions as to whether this makes for more punctures, but there are also passionate opinions that low-profile tyres increase the risk of damaging your rim if you hit a pothole. The modern trend is to get as low-profile as possible for the looks and the handling, although to do this on a four-wheel drive would suggest that you are not intending to take the vehicle off-road. Most cars have the lower-profile tyres for the higher specification levels. Although I like comfort and obviously safety features, there are times I prefer to drive lower-spec models to get a more comfortable ride. The recent rains might make us review our fashion trend to low-profile tyres. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Rob Fraser, Alan Zervis and Paul Just and the Overdrive team for their great help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, you can go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or there's our Facebook and Instagram pages, both called Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.